You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, welcome everybody to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Our guest today is Daniel Kirk, and our topic is five things you need to know you need to know about the Gospel of Mark. Now, Daniel is the director of the Newbegin Fellowship, which is in San Francisco, and he's written a bunch of books, most recently a book on the Gospels called A Man Attested by God. But, you know, Jared, he's also our first interview, which was sort of like, this is this is going back in time, to the, back to the good old simple days where we had no sound quality. That, that's right. And we were nervous. I, I specifically remember that episode where we were so nervous to do anything wrong. <laughs> My palms were so sweaty. I remember we you drinking heavily that day. You started around 2 p.m. No, we didn't drink at all, but I think we were too nervous. The drinking came later, other episodes. I was fine because I just prayed a lot that day. <laughs> And the Spirit of God is with me, but anyway. So, so Daniel was our first interview, although I, he wasn't the first published. Correct. He, he wasn't our first episode published last year, but yeah. he was our first interview, and uh, we invited him back on. So, this is our first time to have a repeat guest. It's a really good choice, I think. And Daniel's so articulate and knowledgeable about a lot of things, and one of them is the Gospel of Mark, and I think you people were going to see that. Once he starts talking, it's sort of like it's water from a fire hose at times. And, you know, it's, it's interesting hearing people who've like grasped something very well. It's like you can just feel the synapses firing and going all over the place and like seeing multiple connections at the same time. But Daniel does a very good job of explaining that really well to people and I think motivating people. You know, Jared, you said too during the podcast that you just want to read Mark. Yeah, and and I would I would also say just to be very clear, he may be a repeat guest on the show, but the content is all new, and it just it shows how smart he is that we've brought him on for two different topics. Right, right, great. I just I don't know. I just love being surprised by how intricate and thoughtful biblical literature is, and it makes me want to read it. You know? Yeah, these are, these were smart folks writing these books, and they knew they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Well, very intentionally laid out. I mean, Mark has a purpose. And it's like, oh, that's why that scene is there. Oh, I had no idea why that was there right in the middle of the gospel. It's, it's not just a bunch of random stories that, like, you know, my students will throw together a paper at the last minute, you know, not to insult them, but it's true. You know, but Mark's not doing that. So, it's, and th- these are artists and theologians and followers of Jesus, and I just think it's like, I, I love being surprised by the Bible and Daniel did that for me for about 45 minutes, so that's just great stuff. All right, well, let's go learn five important things about the Gospel of Mark. Let's do that. I think that one of the most important things that we can do when we read a Gospel is to not come away from the passage until we've been able to name how we or our communities that we're part of tend to do the very sorts of things that Jesus' opponents are doing. So I think it's always important for us to say, let's start by assuming that we're more like the Pharisees than like Jesus. All right, welcome, Daniel. Welcome back, I should say, to the Bible for Normal People podcast. You were our first first interview. Interview, yeah. Is that right? That's right. Jared, do you remember? Not the first first published one, but the first interview yeah, see, yeah, I thought I was going to be all cool and be the first one that was out there. And then you're like, how about if we lead with someone, oh, I don't know, maybe Richard Rohr, who could actually get us some <laughs> listeners? <laughs> oh, Daniel. Oh, gosh. You know, people, you should know out there that Daniel, Jared, and I, we've known each other for quite a while. Yeah. We go way back to days that we are better yet unnamed. Yeah. Back to days where we couldn't teach now if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. How does that sound? But hey, we have this. Well, listen, our topic is Mark, the Gospel of Mark, yeah. because it's it's the best gospel because it's the shortest one. That's <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. It is It is the oldest one, right, probably, Daniel? Yeah, probably so. Probably the yeah. oldest. I mean, how, how certain are scholars, New Testament scholars on that? Like, it's like it's pretty well established or they're still guessing. Yeah, that's pretty well established. I mean, every now and then you'll try to get somebody who says that Mark is kind of a condensation of Matthew and Luke. But I would say that you've got probably, you know, 85, 90% of New Testament scholars that said Mark came first, 
Matthew and Luke both used Mark, and then, you know, John came along and did whatever he did. John was on acid, so. And, and just, I mean, I think, n- n- before we get into a lot of stuff here that we want to talk about, I, I just know people are going to ask, can you give me one or two reasons why people say that Mark is probably the oldest of the four Gospels. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, They're all the synoptic Gospels, and so, you know, New Testament scholars play these games where we try to figure out who used which one, you know, why are they why do they have the similarities and the differences that they have? And, you know, without going into details or taking part in any particular text, the most likely explanation as you put all three of those next to each other is that both Matthew and Luke used Mark. Um, the ways that they take different parts of his story, um, that, that he provides the backbone that both Matthew and Luke follow. But if Matthew goes off and does his own thing, then Luke sticks with Mark's backbone. And if um, Luke goes off and does his own thing, then Matthew sticks with the backbone. So, Mark is this middle term that kind of, it's like the glue that holds the three of them together. It's like an ex, almost like, you know, detective work. Yeah. To really find that out. It's not obvious. It's not like, hey, I'm the first one. Right. So, why is it second? Why is it second in the order? Uh, I think that uh, people used to really like Matthew. I think they thought he was the bomb. <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay. Matthew Matthew um, paid off the <laughs> paid off the guys. Well, you know, said, I mean, hey, why, why is anything in the order it's in? And that's probably part of it. The um you know, all those things happened later when people figured out how to make something called a codex, which is when you take papers and fold them in half and glue them all together rather than having a big long scroll. Um uh, but that hadn't quite happened yet when the gospels were written. So, you know, all of those decisions were you know, folks later on down the line trying to figure out how to hold everything together. All right. Well, listen, we, we asked you to come here and to talk about Mark, and we thought we'd try to pinpoint, if, if we can get to all of them, I hope we will, five things that you, Daniel Kirk, think are really important for people to know if they really want to sort of get the gospel of Mark, things that make Mark Mark and not Matthew or Luke or John. So... So, why don't we just do that? What's, what's like the first thing that comes to your mind there in terms of a distinctive element of Mark's gospel? Yeah, and so, I want to say this. Like, to a certain degree, everything that I'm going to talk about, I think is important because it helps you read Mark and hold the whole thing together as a coherent story. Uh, I think that one of the things that is hardest for, for us because of the ways that in church and Sunday school, we've been trained just to read like one, you know, one little passage or one little story at a time is that it, we don't typically have a good grasp of like the holistic unfolding of the narratives of the Gospels. And one of the reasons I think Mark is awesome is because once you've keyed into a few key things, you can definitely see how he's structuring the narrative and how the ministry of Jesus changes at different points and how he's trying to reinforce different aspects of who Jesus is as the story develops. So, I'm hopefully going to be able to give some markers here. So, Mark starts with uh, the very first verse is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you could say that the whole gospel of Mark is about redefining what those terms mean. And when I say redefining, what I mean is any Jewish person in the first century knew darn well uh, what a Messiah was supposed to be. It was the person who was supposed to come and set up his throne in Jerusalem. And the only way you can do that and be a king and a free people is if you throw off the, the yoke of your foreign overlords, who in this case are the Romans. So, in one sense, Mark's whole project is about redefining uh, the nature of Jesus as Messiah. And so, you know, maybe you have heard this thing called the Messianic secret. Um, scholars talk about this. It's when Jesus does something like heals somebody, or when Peter confesses him to be the Messiah, Jesus is always like, hush, hush, don't tell anybody. And, you know, people have wondered, what is this all about? I think a, a really great explanation is that the problem with confessing Jesus as Messiah is that everybody knew what that meant, but that's not what Jesus was up to. Jesus was not about gathering a people to throw off the shackles of Rome. He had a, a really different vision for, for himself. And um, you know, this is why if you go through Mark, he's not called Messiah very much. Jesus is very resistant to the son of David as a title. So, you know, some of these typical ways that you think about Jesus and how he's depicted in the Gospels, 
they just don't, they're not what Mark is about. And in fact, Mark seems a little bit nervous about him. Secret secrets are no fun. Well, secret secrets hurt someone. I don't think it's nice for Jesus to tell secrets. But he had a reason, didn't he? He didn't want people to get the wrong idea about him. Right, right. Because we're redefining Messiah, and if you sort of allow people to talk about you as that, they're going to have the wrong idea. Exactly. Well, they're going to have the right idea historically, but not the right idea from a Jesus point of view. Right. The, okay. You need to have the. You need to let the life of Jesus be the the interpretive grid, the the hermeneutic for interpreting what Messiah means. Um, you can't bring your Messiah baggage and understand Jesus, which is why nobody understands him, including his closest followers. Can I ask a, a question? Because, I mean, I just, just to follow up exactly on that, is, is it fair to say then that Mark's gospel, he's, he's redefining, he's defending Jesus as Messiah? Is that, can I say that? He's, it's, it's like an argument for why Jesus is Messiah, even though he doesn't do the expected things Messiahs do? Yeah, in some ways, yes. And and part of why that's going to be important, I think, is because of the context in which Mark was written. And we'll, we'll get to this a little bit more in a few minutes, but Mark was probably written just before AD 70. So, in the time when Jerusalem and the Jewish people are in revolt against Rome, and Jesus is being depicted as a Messiah who is predicting actually the destruction of Jerusalem uh, rather than the destruction of the Romans and the exaltation of Jerusalem. So, that's going to be part of why it's important to say Jesus is this kind of Messiah, i.e. this suffering Messiah, and not that other kind. But let me, let me give you a few hooks for this redefinition of Jesus as Messiah. Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is referred to as God's son by someone other than a demon uh, three times. Once at his baptism, when the voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son and and you I'm well pleased. A second time at his transfiguration, when the voice from heaven says to the disciples, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then once at his crucifixion, when the um, centurion, seeing how Jesus died, says, surely this man was son of God. So, these are like literary markers of the identity of Jesus in the story. And uh, it would take a lot to unpack, but um, baptism in earliest Christianity is associated with the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, you know, maybe you remember Romans 6, all of us who've been baptized into Christ have been buried with him and you know, that kind of thing. And in Mark's gospel also, you know, Jesus asks James and John at one point, can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with, right? Referring to his coming death. So, you, what you have here in the baptism scene is Jesus as son of God, which is it's, it's a Messiah title, right? David was son of God. Adam was son of God. It, so, it's a, it's a Messiah title, but it's being enacted in the context of like this, this symbol of not only cleansing, but also death. And that's the place where God says, you're my son, I'm, I'm pleased with you. At the transfiguration, what had just happened, Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. Yay, go Peter. And then um, Jesus says, now I'm going to tell you, the Son of Man's going to have to suffer and die, and Peter rebukes him, right? So, there's this, there's this conflict between Jesus and Peter about what the word Messiah means. And then the divine voice comes in and says, this is my beloved Son, i.e. He is the Messiah, listen to Him, Right, so it's basically God is siding with Jesus against Peter about what it means for him to be Messiah and suffering and dying. And then at the, the crucifixion, he's got this sign over his head that says, King of the Jews, but then it's when the centurion sees how he dies that he says, surely this man was son of God. So, the, the whole framework of the book, that's the beginning, the middle, and the end. The, the whole, like the first time we see Jesus, the middle, and then the last time we see Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, we have this messiahship associated with his death. Um, and that's, that's like these key literary markers that outline Mark's whole messiah revision project. So, what, what is it saying? It's a literary marker, but maybe can, can you like concisely say, you know, we, we're saying it's upending these other understandings of what Messiah should be or ought to be, but what is it actually saying more positively about what it means to be? Yeah, more positively, it's saying that the Messiah who's going to rule the world on God's behalf is going to have to suffer and die. 
and that that suffering and death is the way of life for the Messiah here on earth. People always will often say that Jesus' favorite thing to refer to himself as is the Son of Man. That's his favorite title. And there's some truth to that. Jesus you know, refers to himself as Son of Man throughout this story. There, there's an interesting thing that happens in Mark's gospel. Like, between the baptism and the confession, Jesus is going around healing a bunch of people, feeding a bunch of people, forgiving sins, exercising demons. And in that part of the gospel, where he's, he's showing the power of the kingdom of God, right? He really is this powerful king. When he talks about the Son of Man, he talks about the Son of Man having authority, Authority on earth to forgive sins, uh, authority to tell you what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. As soon as Peter makes his confession, it shifts. And he starts talking about how the Son of Man has to um, be rejected and suffer and die and rise again after three days. So, in this narrative arc of Mark's gospel, the first half of the gospel is like, yes, Son of God, the one who is empowered by the Spirit of God to rule the world on God's behalf. And then in the second half, it's, and the way that he's really going to consummate this rule and take his throne is by giving up his life in suffering and death. And so, when, he, when you hear about the Son of Man in the second half of the gospel, it's typically about um, this being rejected, suffering, and dying, or that after he's dead and risen, then the Son of Man will return uh, with the glory of the Father. That's the tension that pervades the book, the authority that Jesus has as king, and yet the fact that he can only fully come into his kingship by way of the cross. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there, that sounds like a, a very multi-layered, highly textual thing that weaves through Mark's gospel, which probably is seven podcasts. <laughs> but that's good. So, it's, it's, you know, redefining Messiah. I mean, it's a big deal, and it's, I think, stunning that... I mean, it, it didn't really hit me before until you said it that it's the centurion's confession at the end, con- the Gentile confessing Jesus as Messiah by how he died. Yeah. That's like a climactic moment. It's not just this weird thing, but it's, but it's actually for Mark's gospel, this is, they see it too kind of thing. So, but, but we should, let's move on to the second point. We wanna, I want to get to these because you've got some great points here and you had another point, the second point which I don't know if you touched on that already, but why don't you tell us what it is? Yeah. So, the other thing that's happening simultaneously is that while the gospel is redefining messiahship, it's simultaneously attempting to show us what powerful, faithful, human participation in the reign of God looks like. Specifically, the disciples are empowered to do all the things that Jesus does. Now, I would say it's derivative, right? Jesus gets to do these things and therefore his followers do. But you know, how is Jesus' ministry summarized? He went around preaching in all their synagogues and healing and exercising demons, right? And then when Jesus calls the the disciples to him, it's so that they might be entrusted with the authority to preach and cast out demons. That's in chapter 3. Then chapter 6, Jesus sends them out, and they go out, and he gives them authority to preach and exercise, and they come back like, hey, we preached, we cast out demons, and we anointed the sick, and they were healed. Right? So, that whole cluster of things that typify Jesus' ministry, they participate in. And then we move into a part of the gospel that's sort of defined by bread and feedings. And when Jesus sees the 5,000, what he says to the disciples is, you give them something to eat. Now, what, what usually happens when we read that story is that we step back and go, yeah, but then they couldn't do it, so Jesus did it. But that's not actually what happens in the story. What happens in the story is that Jesus breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples and the disciples give it to the people and feed them. So, the, the disciples are actually the ones who feed the many out of the, the paucity of bread that they had. So, you've got the healing, the exercising, the feeding, which happens twice. You've got the preaching. Uh, and then, you have this thing that all of us good Christians know is the single most unrepeatable aspect of Jesus' ministry, the thing he does for us. He goes to the cross and dies. And the first time that his death comes up, he immediately turns to the crowd and says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, that person must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So, this whole story of Jesus 
is is wrapping the community of his followers up into this both powerful and yet you know paradoxically powerful upside down kingdom where you know greatness and finding your life is found specifically in giving up your life and yet there's also this this power of God in us to continue doing on earth and to do on earth uh, what Jesus did while while he was here The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back, and this week we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. So make the connection between because I was I was tracking with basically this interesting authority now being given to to humanity to at least to the disciples who are doing the same things that Jesus is doing and then you ended that by talking about that as an upside down way of thinking about it. can you why is that upside down uh, well a couple of things I think the ups, it's upside down in part because of that the the call to cross bearing like take up your cross and follow like that places it in this paradoxical context right where the disciples after healing and feeding and all that what they're thinking about is who gets to be the greatest in the kingdom and that very question uh, shows that they they haven't gotten it i think the the feeding is maybe a, a great place to to look at the the paradox of it the upside down nature of it where it's from something that looks like nothing, that the abundance comes. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's the parable of the sower, right? The sower goes out to, to sow, and the seed that actually ends up bearing fruit, it's, you know, one of the however many seeds didn't bear fruit, and then the one does, and it bears fruit 30, 60, or 100 times. So, you know, the idea that you have this this small, unassuming thing, and that the, the the kingdom of God surprises you kind of coming up from below in a tax collector, in fishermen, in the, the person of this, you know, homeless, wandering teacher and prophet, um, so that it's it's contained in these surprising vessels, and it's not a power that comes in from above. Yeah, uh, specifically not in the the power of kings and the rulers of the earth. Well, I have a I have a follow up to that because I think I want to tie it in when we talked about the Messiah and okay we have these markers of what messiahs do and so we're seeing healings and there's something pointing to Jesus being unique uh, as a messiah whatever now Mark may like redefine that it's not what the culture was expecting but then is there something to the fact then that now his disciples are actually doing these things. So, I just think of messiahs as like once-in-a-lifetime unique individual who is held up as something different, separate from, kind of holy and different from the people. And here you're, you're talking about the narrative of Mark, presenting it as the disciples can come after Jesus and do these same things. Yep. Was that, is that the case? Yeah, well, I think that, I think it's the case that who your leader is and how that person brings salvation or deliverance always sets the expectation for what deliverance is going to look like in the future, right? I mean, if a Messiah comes and kicks out the Romans, um, maybe he's this once-in-a-lifetime leader, but there's a whole lot of generals and soldiers that are out making war in the name of this Messiah and with this Messiah in order for that to happen. And so, uh, I do think it's it's really significant that 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 Jesus is wrapping up the disciples into this narrative to show them that you know specifically that the way that the kingdom comes in himself is the way that it needs to be carried on and continued in them. And you know all of this actually bleeds into my third point which is I think that one of the specific reasons Mark was written was to provide an alternative narrative about what the kingdom of God looks like, about what kingship at God's right hand looks like. It's an alternative narrative to the one that was being fomented around the Jewish rebellion against Rome. Well, uh, Daniel, before it, before you start on that, I just want to ask one question. I think I'm hearing something that is really exciting and sort of new. I hadn't really thought about it this way before, but you know, the disciples are like Jesus's army. Yeah. And by extension, the church. And 
it just it, it struck me, you know, these hymns we sometimes sing in church, like Onward Christian Soldiers. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I can speak for myself, maybe Jared, you two or others who are listening, that I was at the event, you go out and you just witness really loudly for Jesus and convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. But that isn't at all what Mark seems to be talking about. It's <laughs> you go like serve people and die. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's amazing. This brings tears to my eyes. This is like an amazing book. Yeah, I mean, it's... Anyway, keep going. I don't, I don't want to ruin you. Go ahead. No, Number that's, three. That's, that's great. <laughs> hey, normal people. Pete here. Just a quick break. First, if you like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes. I could back that up with plenty of Bible verses, but there's just no time. Also, consider supporting our work at Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, cheaper than the price of a very bad cup of coffee, you'll have access to videos, early announcements, book clubs, an active Slack group of kindred spirits, and more. And that's patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. Finally, a huge thanks to our producers group at Patreon. They get on calls with us and give us great feedback. If you like what we're doing, thank them. If not, just blame Jared. So thank you to Ted Cole, James White, Scott Smith, Darlene Sinclair, Jonathan Beck, Marilyn Johnson, Daniel Wesley, Darren McKenna, Sharon Rowland, and Dee Forrest. We couldn't do what we do without you. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, but that, that's that's exactly right. But so you know, I mean, onward, onward, Jewish soldiers. I think is the the question that that Mark <laughs> is uh, you know written to to address, which is you know at the at the time you know, late sixties into around seventy seventy three, like in that in that period of the the Jewish war against Rome, there was a great expectation of God coming to deliver the people, and that this war was going to be the way that God's kingdom is established. One of the most important prophetic acts that Jesus ever performs or states is he prophesies the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think that we actually don't give this enough credit. Like when we're talking about what did Jesus do, and I generally hate apologetics, but you know, like this is a real deal where, you know, Jesus is sitting there with his disciples and he's like, you see these stones, not one's going to be left on another that won't be overturned. And, you know, N.T. Wright has done a a lot of work on that prophecy of Jesus in Mark 13 being all about the destruction of Jerusalem. Like, we've, some of it gets sucked into, you know, end times prophecies and that kind of stuff, especially in American pop culture. But what Jesus is talking about throughout that whole chapter where it sounds like all these terrible things are happening and, you know, pray it doesn't happen in winter because you're going to have to run off and one will be taken and one will be left and, you know, all of this. It's it's about the coming, these armies that are going to come and uh, and set up shop around and, and finally end up destroying Jerusalem. So, I think that part of what the impact of this whole narrative is, is, you know, there's this one moment where in Mark 13, Mark actually turns and addresses the audience. You know, he says, you know, Jesus is talking and it says, you know, and when you see the desolating sacrilege or the abomination of desolation as spoken about in the prophet Daniel, and then Mark literally turns to the audience and says, let the reader understand, right? So, he's talking to people who could see at that time what was about to happen, and he tells them, run, get out of town. This is not going to be the way that God delivers and establishes Israel. So, you know, some... A lot of folks, you know, recently, especially, you know, get in progressive Christian circles and people are start talking about pacifist Jesus. I think pacifist Jesus is a little bit anachronistic, but the idea that the Gospels are written to dissuade Jesus' first century followers from getting themselves into a war, thinking that God's going to deliver them, like, I think that's the thread that, that kind of generates pacifist Jesus um, as a you know, a viable reading of the Gospels for a lot of people. Excellent. Yeah, so, okay, was that three or two? That was three, yeah. Okay, awesome. Okay, so an alternate narrative. Okay, so how about, I guess, after three comes four? Yeah. What's your fourth point? <laughs> I just want to point out to everybody that when you go to get a PhD in the humanities, you do have to take the math section of the GRE. <laughs> and uh, this Yeah, but is they why. don't look at that. They don't care. This is why. Because one day this you're going to be on a podcast and you're going to have to come up. Uh, what number? number? <laughs> okay. 
Okay. So, so with this, Jesus comes and he shows the power, but then he's like, yeah, but that, um, that exercise of power is not going to be what gets me the kingship of the kingdom of God. It's going to be the way of the cross. And, and that's juxtaposed with this, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles and the promise of the destruction of Jerusalem. I think this whole story ends up weaving this holistic inversion of power where on the one hand, the bad guy powers are displaced. Jesus talks about binding the strong man so that you can pillage his house. But it's not how you'd expect. How is it that the that the strong man's house is bound? How do you know? Well, demons are cast out. So there is um there is freedom for the people of God who who had been enslaved to these you know enslaving spiritual forces. How is it that the strong man's cast out? Well, Jesus like goes to dinner and and then he there's people at the table who normally don't get invited to the table and then grumpy mcgrumpy pants says hey how can you have these people at the table and jesus is like you know the people who follow me these are the children of god this is this is the family this is the community so it's this peculiar reorientation of the the people of God this this peculiar freeing of the people of God that that bubbles up in and around the the ministry of Jesus as they as they gather around the healer so th- that stuff is all you know it's sort of implicit um, there's these power things in the first half of the gospel and then it, it really comes to a head as the disciples and Jesus fight about the implications of his destiny um, in the second half. So Jesus predicts his death and Peter says, no, no, no. And then Jesus rebukes him, right? So that's kind of the setup. And then um, you keep going and Jesus predicts his death the second time. And then we hear that one, the disciples are confused. Secondly, that they, they go on and start arguing among themselves which one of them is the greatest, right? How do you know you haven't listened to Jesus when he talked about the fact that he's going to go die, right? We, we're going to start talking about who's the greatest. And Jesus, he's like, if you want to be great, you have to be least and servant of all. And then he takes a child and puts it in front of him and says, like, if you want to be great, you've got to become like this child. And, and it's, it's not just a metaphor. He says, if you receive a child like this, you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive the Father who sent me. So that the way to God is not this upward escalation toward heavenly power, but it's this downward slope uh, toward you know, the child who's kind of at the bottom of the, the patriarchal pecking order here. Uh, in this context. And just to underscore the fact that this is this big conflict between Jesus and the disciples, four stories later, after Jesus says, if you receive a child like this, you receive me, people bring their kids to Jesus to have him, you know, lay hands on them, and the disciples don't let the kids come, right? So... What a bunch of morons. What a bunch of morons! Seriously. I would never have done that. Never, never. But you you don't get the severity of what they've done if you don't read the whole story and realize what he had just told them for, you know, four stories earlier about what it means to receive a child. So then the third time Jesus predicts his death, they're all like, uh, whatever. And then James and John come up and they're like, hey, Jesus, I'm four years old. Will you do whatever I ask? Just say yes, dad. Um, and, and Jesus is like, oh my gosh, what is it? And they're like, so, um, can one of us sit at your right hand and one at your left in glory? And Jesus does the massive face palm. And uh, he's like, <laughs> do you know what you're asking? Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the you baptize I'm going to be baptized. Yes! He's like, yeah, you will. But what they don't know is that the only people in the Gospel of Mark who get to be at Jesus' right hand and left hand are the two people who are crucified next to Jesus in the final scene. And then, of course, the disciples get grumpy with James and John because I think they were going to ask for James and John as like a surprise Christmas present, and then they went and ruined it by asking for themselves. So they're all grumpy that James and John asked, and Jesus says, look, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles and their great ones lorded over their people. It shall not be so among you, but whoever wants to be first must be least and servant of all. So, so there's this whole inversion of social power structures that's happening 
in the person of Jesus, and it's supposed to be bubbling out and creating a community that is entrusting itself to God in, I would say, cruciform, cross-shaped ways, precisely by refusing to play the power games in the way that um, that we've been taught and inculcated in us since birth. One one way of looking at that that was a good, a nice shift for me that I hadn't really thought about, and, and it sounds like a, a small nuance, but I think it's really important that the child, like we, we tend to think of children today uh, as really just sort of innocence, and it's like really cute, and I think of like a Bible story when Jesus is mm-hmm. holding this child in front of him, but the way you talked about it was the children were sort of the lowest on the pecking order. That this we're talking about social structures that were pretty stratified, uh, and so there were clear ways places you had a place, and children were at the at the bottom of that, and so that it's more of a power dynamic than it is sort of this innocence dynamic. Yeah, I, the the basic household unit in the Greco-Roman world, right? You've got husbands who get to be in control of their wives, masters who get to be in control of their slaves, parents who get to rule over their children. So, like, if you're a child. Women and slaves get to tell you what to do. Like in, in a world that's you know construed uh, based on these sorts of these sorts of power dynamics, even though that's seen as a, a temporary status, um, especially for for a male child. Yeah, they are um, they're at the bottom, and I think that's that's critical to understanding why that story fits at that point, and and to seeing the that there is a there is a ma- there's a potentially massive kind of social upheaval that's kind of that's seeded in the gospel, right? It doesn't it doesn't explode and come from above, but it's this little seed that if you if you enact it, everything will change. So speaking of sort of the social status and the power dynamics of this, mm-hmm. maybe you can you can go into your fifth your fifth and final point here. Yeah. Um, this is the this is the right place for it. So um, one more thing that uh, I think takes you on a little journey throughout the whole gospel and that's this. If you read the story with this grid, this upside down power dynamics and the idea that it's elevating the people who you would think, you know, should be pushed off to the margins, one thing that you're going to see is that the nameless women in the gospel come off as ideal disciples in a way that the 12 never end up living up to. If you want to know the best people in this gospel other than Jesus to look to for the kind of the kind of life that we should live, the nameless women are the ones. So, first nameless woman, Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus heals her and immediately after her fever departs her, she gets up and begins to serve them. Right? That's what we were just What was her name? Peter's mother-in-law. Um oh, okay. So, Sorry, I missed that part. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Um, <laughs> uh, like, come on, you could tell us that that Siren of Cyrene's kids are Alexander and Rufus, and you can't even tell us the name of Peter's mother-in-law. Um, and uh, but like service, this is the thing the disciples refused to do. Right, this is what Jesus kept calling them to, and they as they kept pursuing greatness for themselves, and it's embodied in Peter's mother-in-law, the hemorrhagic woman, the woman with the bleed who comes up behind Jesus and touches the 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 cusp of her garment. When she owns up to what she's done and comes to Jesus, she says, he says to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Right? So here's faith in contrast to the disciples who a very short time before were in a boat with Jesus and he's rebuking them for being little faith, for not having much faith. And then you have the Syrophoenician woman. All right, so so what's happened when she comes on the scene? Um, Jesus had fed the 5,000. And, and, and the disciples, right? Together, they had fed the 5,000 and they were completely clueless. Mark tells us they did not understand about the loaves. Then next chapter, the Syrophoenician woman, and then the chapter afterward, there's going to be the feeding of the 4,000, okay? So right in the middle of these two feeding narratives, this woman comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, will you please heal my daughter? She's got you know demon. And Jesus says to her, it's not good to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs completely insulting, bad Jesus. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Mic drop. Mic drop. 
She's like, wow, that's an awesome answer. Go. So not only does she mic drop, not only is she the only person who like wins an argument with Jesus in the whole gospel, she also, unlike the disciples, somehow has eyes to see that there's enough bread, not only for the children at the table, but also for whoever else underneath, not only maybe for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentiles. Like that is a, that's a turning point. And the second feeding narrative, most scholars think was actually with the Gentile audience as well. And this, this is like part of how that comes to be. So Syrophoenician woman, she's the one who understands the bread. Then there's the, Jesus is he comes to Jerusalem and he's rebuked the, the scribes for being devourers of widow ho- widows' houses and all these kinds of things. And then they're sitting there watching people put their money into the, the offering box in the temple. And when Jesus sees this poor widow come, he says, she put in more than all these others because they gave from their abundance. But she, from her lack, put in all she had. And what it says in Greek is she put in her whole life. She gave up her life. So that idea of like costly, you know, life-taking discipleship is embodied in this poor widow. Again, the very thing that makes Peter rebuke Jesus and that creates this turmoil between him and the disciples. Then finally, there is the woman who anoints Jesus in Mark's gospel, the woman who comes in and you know, the inappropriate woman who comes and puts oil on Jesus doesn't put it on his feet. She puts it on his head like it's a messianic anointing, right? So it's this act that seems to in some way confess Jesus as Messiah. But when Jesus goes to interpret the act, what he says is, you know, leave her alone. She has prepared my body beforehand for burial. This good deed she's done will be told in all the world, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in memory of her. And like, why this action as what's told wherever the gospel is proclaimed? I think it's precisely because she was able to, in this action, hold together Jesus as Messiah and Jesus as someone who is about to be buried. That whole reorientation of what Messiah means that Mark is trying to spend this whole, his whole gospel trying to get across is embodied in this one act when the woman anoints Jesus and thereby prepares his body for burial. So, Uh, Like you could ignore these people because they don't have names and like, okay, they're on the margins. And so, you know, they, they're not the ones that were chosen to lead the church. So they're not as important, but I would suggest that if we, if we think that the, that the 12 dude bros are more important than these women for those reasons, that we are reading the book with the very posture that the book is seeking to overturn. You know, I just had a brilliant insight. Bring it. It's all due to you, Daniel, but there's like a paradox within a paradox. The paradox of the kind of Messiah Jesus is, is only really grasped paradoxically by the kinds of people you wouldn't expect to grasp it. Exactly. These unnamed women. That's actually, that is, Mark was so clever. It's amazing. He really, I'm serious. It's like, okay, it just, I don't know, people, I hope this makes you want to go read this gospel again, because it, it's doing that to me. But anyway, that's pretty cool. So this marginalized and the nameless women, uh, any more? That's that's my that's my last one. That's your last one. Okay, well that's a lot. And it and it sounds like there's this climactic moment here where like we've built up this tension even even as you've been talking Daniel of there's this uh messiah and then there's a messiah who has to be buried and there's a major tension there that this woman in the anointing really brings together and integrates these two things that don't seem to be going together in this act of this anointing. Yeah. And and it's in it's in chapter fourteen, right before the Last Supper. So like this is the beginning of the Passion narrative proper, uh, right here. So <clears throat> I, I would ask because I, I often ask this, especially when we have specific texts and we have really smart people on like you. What would be some practical like that's that's amazing? And I'm I'm with Pete. I'm like pumped. So it's this is my version of listening to like jock jams before you go out on the court or something. For people who don't have the have the tools that you have and the training that you have. What are some practical reading strategies for people when they pick up Mark? What what are things that they can be looking for? What are ways that they can start to to get the texture of the book in the way you've laid it out? When when you come to Mark, when you if you're reading at some point, ask yourself: Am I reading chapters one through eight, or am I reading chapters eight through sixteen? 
Because in the middle of chapter 8 is where Jesus predicts his death, and then there aren't any more, well, there's only one more miracle after that, and it's one Jesus has to do because the disciples can't do it, right? They've, they've become blind and, and incapable of continuing to embody Jesus' ministry. So, ask yourself that question because it matters. The, the story takes a, a dramatic turn there. And it's it's associated with you know whether it's the the time of displaying Jesus as the king or the king who's going to then suffer and die. So that's that's one strategy. Um, another strategy I, I would suggest is pay attention to which titles of Jesus are being used because they matter. They're used in certain places. So pay attention to what title Jesus uses of himself or what other people say about him. And uh, allow the story to to start informing what those things mean. And then, uh, I guess a final strategy is, and this is actually not necessarily related to specifically Mark's narrative, but I think that one of the most important things that we can do when we read a gospel is to not come away from the passage until we've been able to name how we or our communities that we're part of tend to do the very sorts of things that Jesus' opponents are doing. Because Jesus is coming into a place where there's this established religious culture, where there are established authoritative teachers and ways of interpreting the Bible and moral givens and cultural givens for that place. And that is where most of us are if we are, in, if we are church people. So, I think it's always important for us to say, let's start by assuming that we're more like the Pharisees than like Jesus and see what this passage might open up for us in terms of how we need to, uh, how we've slipped into just the, the typical power structures of the world and how we need to be called back to the upside down kingdom of God. Well, Daniel, as we're coming toward the end here, I did want to ask you too, if you have off the top of your head a readable book recommendation or two for people who might want to just follow up a little bit more on looking at, I guess, the theology of Mark. Really, that's what we're talking about. But do, you, do, you, and do any come to mind immediately? Or if not, if you want to think about them, we can always add them to a link later on the podcast. Anything? Um, yeah. I mean, the, I think that the, the, the book on Mark that kind of gives the most pervasive reading with this upside down power thing is probably Shed Meyer's Binding the Strong Man. It's kind of a intense, sometimes technical commentary on the gospel of Mark, but if you can like skim past the the technical stuff, uh, he's very dialed into the the power dynamics. Although I do think he keeps it located in Rome a little bit more than, than I would. Uh, but that's a, that's a great place uh, to go if, you, if you're willing to do a, a little bit of heavy lifting. Okay, cool. Well, at the, as the, uh, we are coming to the end of our time, Daniel. Is there anything that you're working on that, that you would recommend for folks, a book that you've recently written or are working on, or where can people find you online? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll just point you back to a couple of, thing, couple of books that, that I've published if you want to get a sense of like my overall like Jesus theology and the stuff about the the women and all that and and how that fits into the kingdom of God stuff, uh, my book Jesus Have I Loved but Paul question mark is a is a very readable uh, sort of introduction to to basically my my theology of of the synoptic gospels and there's a lot of Mark stuff going on there. If you're feeling a little bit more, you know, like like you're ready to to take a dive, my most recent book, A Man Attested by God, it has a, a lot of significant detailed exegesis on Jesus as Son of God, Jesus as Son of Man, Jesus as miracle worker, and Jesus followers. Uh, so a number of the things that are that you know I, I went over in like five minutes here, I I do you know fifty or seventy pages on in that book. So if you're feeling intrepid, you could dive into that. Very cool. And then. If that's just too much for you and you need 140 characters, uh, you can find me at J.R.D. Kirk on Twitter. And, you know, I Facebook at Daniel.Kirk, I think. So, you know, if you want to follow along with, with my online ranting, that's, uh, that's where I am these days. That's good. That's more, that's more my speed. I don't, I don't do these books. Yes, my children's college funds. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for just a, a, just a wealth of information about Mark. I, I would guess, just like our listeners will probably do, I will want to listen to this a few times because there are just so much things going on in, in what you shared. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, my pleasure. And yeah, go just go read Mark, folks. 15 and a half chapters. Yeah, make it your favorite because it's the best. Yeah. Good stuff. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Bible for Normal People. One thing, quick before you go, don't don't turn it off. Don't turn it off yet. Do not turn it off. We want to talk a little bit about Christmas. I mean, it's such a, uh, a holy time in the Christian faith, and we, we really want to honor that by selling you some Bible for Normal People merchandise. What better way to celebrate Christmas Amen. than the only God-ordained podcast on the internet merchandise? Amen. That's true. We have so much fun stuff. You know what? I have to tell you, I've actually, I don't get stuff. I don't get free stuff. I've bought stuff off of this because I think it's so amazing. And I'm looking at like t-shirts and one of my favorite is all theology has an adjective. That's a Jared phrase. Yeah. And that's like a huge seller and we have these pictures like on mugs and on t-shirts of Noah's Ark where a guy's drowning and his hand's just grabbing out of the ocean, which I think is actually accurate. Uh, I think we're going to push a line of prayer cloths. Aren't we going to do that, Jared? Yeah, and you have to do you have to like put some sweat or tears or something on it first? Yes. So it's authentic. We were hoping for an adult onesie. We have kids babies onesies, but um, I don't think it's legal to have an adult onesie, do you? <laughs> it's not legal yet. Not not here not in the states. Not legal yet. Yeah, but working on legislation to have that happen. So anyway, but yeah, if if you go to pedens.com uh, forward slash yes store or if you're just on the website you see it up there just click shop and it's all there so um anyway and, and a shout out yeah. to our designer i don't know if she wants to be named or not but she just did an amazing job with a lot of these things like the noah's ark and should we name her sure do you want to sure let's do it we'll, we'll out her we're out here on the we'll just say shay so people can't shay so yeah shay because it's not a unique name She's at all very shy very like oh don't talk about me don't any attention but yeah she does amazing stuff without her we wouldn't have this stuff so anyway we're really sort of pumped about Shay. excellent so check it out biblefornormalpeople.com front slash store and uh yeah get some stuff for christmas and if you don't have anything to buy uh anyone to buy gifts for i'm i would be happy to take some some merchandise i want a hoodie yeah i want one of everything so just send that to me how's that sound good well maybe we'll post We'll post our Christmas list on maybe on the blog so people can <laughs> post <on> Christmas. <laughs> All right. Go there now. Bye everybody. See ya. See you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.